0: Hello and welcome to Philanthropy Australia's podcast series. I'm Nick Richardson and I'm joined this morning by Verity Morgan-Schmidt, former Executive Officer for the West Australian Farmers Federation and now Stakeholder Relations Director at Farmers for Climate Action. Our other guest is Professor Timothy Reeves, who's Professor in Residence at the Dookie Campus at the University of Melbourne He's a recent chair of the Agricultural Forum, Australian Academy of Technology and Engineering, and he's worked for more than 50 years in agricultural research, development and extension focused on sustainable agriculture in Australia and overseas. We've come together today to talk about the issue of food security in Australia, in particular in relation to the COVID-19 health crisis. So we begin with Verity kicking off our discussion. Verity, one of the key questions that we wanted to cover in terms of the general picture, and especially in the way that a lot of people are thinking about things at the moment, I think it is important for us to understand in terms of what's going on across the country in in the regions and rural Australia and their impact on what's happening in urban and metropolitan Australia. There's a lot that we should consider ourselves lucky for in what's going on in an agricultural and farming sense.
1: Absolutely, Nick. So Australia has fantastic farmers. In fact, I'd probably go so far as to say we have some of the best, most innovative and adaptive farmers in the world. So during this time of disruption to our our daily lives in urban areas, we are incredibly lucky to be able to rely on our farmers to ensure that we do have food security and we are going to see supermarket shelves being refilled and restocked. You know, farmers are actually already out there getting next year's crop in livestock are still being cared for farmers you know really do have Australia's back through this so I think we should recognize and be reassured by that fact but I think we also need to just explore you know some of the the challenges that are happening with agriculture more broadly and I think it's great to have this conversation today
0: Tim, I'll go to you here because I think there'll be some of us, and I've watched the virtual rain gauges around the country in the past couple of weeks. There appears to be, in some key areas of the country, signs that maybe the long-term drought might be easing. Should that give us a little bit more cause for optimism in terms of the overall economic landscape from here on?
2: Certainly there has been really good and promising falls of rain in key agricultural areas. At the moment, it's still patchy and there are still areas that are suffering from not just one dry year, but a run of dry years. But certainly when we're looking at some of the key production areas, particularly some of the cropping areas, there has been a change in the weather patterns. We saw it start at the beginning of the year when well, we immediately saw those changes in the Indian Ocean, and almost immediately we got warm, moist air funneling down from Northwest Australia right through the country, and that has really helped. In my own location where I work, Dookie in central Victoria, very safe farming area, but 2018 was a desol two year, bottom 20% of all years, 2019 was a decile one year, but we've started this year with good rainfall. So, yes, certainly spirits have lifted in quite a number of regions, and we hope that everyone else follows in that way.
0: We've set the scene a bit there, I think, with both in terms of the viability of the industry and obviously the most up to date circumstance in a climatic sense, but we're talking about some long term issues here around what those challenges look like. And obviously climate change is front and centre, but there are a whole other set of pressures that are working around all of this as well. Can each of you identify what you think are those key challenges that are affecting the food sector specifically at the moment?
1: As Tim has been saying, the the good rains that we've had have just been brilliant. And I was saying to Tim earlier, we've had farmers doing cartwheels, um, to be quite frank, Nick, after a couple of years that they've been through and the severe drought conditions to have this rain and this beautiful season break. So much optimism, which is just wonderful However, a break in the weather doesn't change the long-term climate trajectory. And this is one of the challenges that we as a sector really are facing. And I mentioned before that farmers are incredibly skilled at adapting. And to be quite blunt, if farmers weren't good adapting, they would have gone out of business. So this is what we do. But the challenges that we're experiencing these compounding problems now. So we've got climate change making itself felt, whether that's in the form of extreme weather events, or including drought, etc we've also got you know we've got degradation of some land areas we've got a loss of natural resources that we rely on we've had obviously the stress across the murray darling basin over year over recent years and the impact that has had on farming families and farming communities in that region so we've got so many compounding challenges being presented so farmers are really working to stay ahead of that. There's a lot of fantastic research that does happen in the sector. Farmers are very, very innovative and keen to ensure that they're on the front foot. However, these challenges are becoming more of an issue for the sector as time goes on.
2: In an oration I gave recently, I identified five what I call grand challenges to, to food and nutritional security. They're on a global basis, but they're absolutely equally applicable here in Australia. And they pick up some of the points that Verity has made. Natural resource management. We need to produce more food. We need it to produce it more efficiently. And yet we're going to have less land, less water to produce that food with. So business as usual, just work. My second of challenges is around soil health that this is an area that we have given too little attention to in recent years. Some would argue we've got to the stage where we've just been using the soil to sort of prop up the crop or the pasture, whatever it might be, and putting the inputs in fertilizer, pesticides, etc. We're mining soil carbon and soil nitrogen, and we have to do things differently there. Verity mentioned water management. We know that this is the greatest challenge for agriculture, both in Australia and globally. I mean, globally, something like 70 to 75% of all fresh water withdrawal are used for agriculture. So if we're gonna be doubling food production by about 2065, whatever it might be, it certainly isn't gonna be with doubling water use. And we've got the same issue here in Australia, particularly in all regions, and we've seen it absolutely exemplified in the Murray-Darling system. The sort of fourth of my grand challenge is relation around input use efficiency. One of our major inputs for our farming systems here, nitrogen fertilizer. It's a huge cost for farmers. The efficiency of using it is still only averages about 50%. So half of it actually gets wasted. It contributes to environmental issues the sort of related point is that we've just got to be more integrated approaches whether it's pest management whether it's more diverse farming systems because we know that more diverse farming systems build resilience against climatic risk and shock and also against economic and financial shocks as well i think these are absolutely critical and the way that globally now climate change is being talked about is as the multiplier effect, the fundamental issues that are affecting farming in Australia and everywhere else. And then you've got the multiplier effect of climate change. How will it influence those, exacerbate the problems? And certainly around water, around temperature, we know that that is going to exacerbate our future challenges to food production.
1: I was just going to pick up on Tim's point around climate as being the multiplier. We sort of view it as being the accelerant, really, of these critical issues that are coming through. And it means that we are, you know, losing time to be able to adapt. Whereas, you know, you would prefer to adapt over a much longer time frame when you're talking about these windows being shortened and these changes being quite sudden, that becomes incredibly difficult. And the way that we tend to talk about this is these are food security, food production, fibre production. It affects every single one of us. It doesn't really matter where you are. You're sort of part of this story. And the way that we tend to talk about it is, a front line of these challenges is where our farmers are sitting, but they're also the front line of these solutions. And so, these five grand challenges that Tim has so beautifully articulated, if we can tackle those, if we can find a way as a community to support our farmers to effectively tackle those, then that puts us in a really strong position heading into a somewhat uncertain future.
0: So, there are a couple of things about that, and I suppose to take Tim's words and your amplification of them around that multiplier, accelerator, and in effect, the compressed time frame that we're operating. The urgency around the whole issue, the goal is for agriculture to be a $100 billion industry by 2030. Is that achievable or is it very aspirational, do you think?
2: It's certainly an aspirational target. A few years ago, when we were looking at 65 billion dollars going up it was a natural target to look at but it will not just happen you know this is not like oh yes we just keep doing what we're doing at the moment and we'll just keep climbing up etc and it's a straight line and we'll get there that couldn't be further from the truth the challenges around maintaining and increasing productivity and at the same time looking after our ecosystems, looking after our soils, our water, our landscapes, gets greater every year. It gets greater because of the climate challenge that we're talking about, but it also gets greater in a range of other issues. I mentioned before, for example, integrated pest management. We're seeing challenges in our technical systems, more herbicide-resistant weeds, affecting the way that the farmers are able to look at the rotation of crops on their farms. There are many issues. I talked before about declining soil carbon and nitrogen. We are mining both soil carbon and soil nitrogen with our intensive cropping systems. At the meetings I'm speaking at, farmers are coming to me and saying, Tim, we know we're doing this. We're really scared about it. What can we do about it? We know we've got to do something and stay profitable. And so that's, that's a challenge that we absolutely need to address because what's happening is that as you deplete soil carbon, soil organic nitrogen levels, you've got to put on more nitrogen fertilizer. And so we've seen sort of margins ratios going from what one of my very good friends is an excellent farm management consultant and, and dealing with real accounts every year. He was saying, that you know, for mixed farming, that might be, mixed farming being cropping, livestock, et cetera, mixed mm. together, that might be $70. So you're spending $70 to make 100 Quite a number of regions, actual pharmacies dealing with on intensive cropping, wheat canola, that's up at about 90 in other words, you're spending $90 to make $100. you are putting on a costly input, more nitrogen fertilizer, which in a riskier climate and a riskier market scenario does not make economic sense. And actually, it doesn't make environmental sense either. Getting more biological nitrogen fixation, more legumes back into our system makes sense from both of those point of views, an economic point of view and an environmental point of view.
0: Verity, to go back to that point, is that $100 billion figure achievable in 10 years?
1: It's such an interesting question, Nick. And, you know, this is a question that I ask myself as well. So we are, Farmers for Climate Action is an associate member of the National Farmers Federation. We were involved in the conversations around the $100 billion target. And while it is aspirational, it shows that this is an industry that is really keen to be around the long term and to actually have a strong and vibrant future. The challenge that we face is also drilling down into some of the nuances of that target as well. So embodied within that is things like getting all of the industries within agriculture to be trending towards carbon neutrality within that same time frame. We've also got an aspirational target within the $100 billion goal of actually having 5%, so $5 billion worth of that productivity and profitability to be coming from ecosystem services and this is why the conversation around what role do we as a community really play in supporting farmers to be able to continue to grow the sector becomes so important and the point that Tim has raised around the margins etc and the way farm businesses are operating I think we really need to understand that from a farming perspective you can't be green in terms of ecologically green, if you're in the red financially. And it's an old saying, but it's as true today as it ever was. And so this is the challenge that we're dealing with at a farm gate level, is when you've got resilience in your system, you can deal with some of the shocks that are coming through. As that resilience is eroded, and whether that is through being forced to push your land that little bit harder than you would have liked to, or whether it is climate-related or market-related shocks, it becomes much harder for individual farmers to be really playing their role and succeeding in being part of that industry-level target.
2: I am totally supportive of that target, but with the fact that we are going into business as usual will not achieve that target. We have to be doing things differently. I quoted some figures from the 2017 Austrade report. Government figures, 2017. In that, agriculture had the highest productivity of any sector in the country. Yes. When you shout out the farmers, they're going, oh, wow, you know, etc." Yes, you know, we're doing absolutely brilliantly. Now, we've been disrupted since then by some terrible climatic events. But as recently as that, agriculture was at the top of the pile. And I believe that what we have seen the history of agriculture in Australia is that farmers working with scientists have formed partnerships that have tackled and overcome every challenge that's been put in front of us over a more than 100 years. And I'm confident that we can do it again. That, as I say, it's not going to be business as usual. We need to be thinking about new approaches the new systems that are going to be required to deal with the very changed world that we're operating in and will operate in, in decades.
0: And one of the things that the sector itself has to deal with and has dealt with for years of course is the volatility around prices and, and more recently obviously the volatility of the climate itself these partnerships that Tim alludes to between farmers and scientists are now more pressing than ever. Is there, in all of these things, dealing with that volatility, dealing with that unpredictability, is there a role for philanthropy in being able to help facilitate more of those partnerships with a a view towards providing some more local responses that deal with these challenges?
1: Nick, that's such a fantastic question. And the point that sort of jumped out to me, which I wanted to pick up on from Tim's comments, really reflected that. And, you know, these conversations with farmers that we know that not everything is perfect, we know that we are having to, to mine nitrogen, etc. So many of those farmers are saying, well, how do we do this better? And while we've had these wonderful partnerships between the research development corporations and we've got outstanding scientists here in Australia, I think that's another thing that we need to reflect on and be really quite grateful for. What has actually been eroded is the extension component. So actually going from the research side to genuinely being able to get more and more farmers engaged in the practice change. And that's simply been a product of the way that our market, our environment, our government structures, et cetera, have moved over recent decades. But this is one of the things that I find, and this is where I see a space for philanthropy in particular, is actually supporting those educational engagement, those empowerment pathways for farmers to be involved. And this is one of the things that, When we do events, and we've done quite a few events, you know, ranging from Stanthorpe on the New South Wales-Queensland border down to Beechworth in Victoria and up to Mackay and over in WA as well. So we've done events all over the country. And what we hear after we've talked about climate, carbon literacy, etc., what we hear is farmers saying, well, what do we do now? How do we do it? Where can we get more information? How do I make those changes on my farm? And how do I be supported in the process so that I'm not pushed into a financially unviable position as well? So there's two components to this. There's a role around sort of de-risking some of those transition phases, particularly if it's transformational change that areas have to experience. And for places like Broken Hill, for argument's sake, You know, Broken Hill has experienced a whole range of innovation and adaptation over time because they've had to. But we're now having situations where pastoralists are finding that lizards are being fried alive. You're having reptiles actually fried alive in that environment. It's becoming very difficult to farm. So from a regional perspective, what does transformational change really start to look like? And Mm -hmm. I think that's a space that philanthropy can help to support as well is empowering communities to be able to have those conversations at the same time as building the capacity for the community to have it through supporting that engage with farmers and scientists etc and that's some of the work that we've been delighted to be involved in but there's just so much more scope and so much more need for it
0: i think one of the interesting things in the language that verity is using there is she's talking about communities it strikes me increasingly over the past 15 to 20 years in particular that we've actually seen a kind of pulling away between the urban community and the rural and regional communities in Australia with a kind of sense that in fact what's going on in the hinterland of Australia is not what's going on around the coast and in the number of most of our suburbs. Is that perception dangerous in terms of these broader discussions? Or is it really just a, a legitimate expression of people reflecting on where they live and what they do?
2: Yeah, it's a very good question, Nick. And it brings me to the last of my grand challenges, which I, I didn't get to, which was what I called the neglect of rural communities. Global issue, urbanization, is a huge issue. Obviously, we're already there in Australia, but globally, by 2050, there will probably be 60% of the world's population or estimated around there in the cities. There's going to be more people in the cities waiting for the food than there are people out there producing it. And we're, of course, we're already right into that stage here oh. in Australia. So this whole question of rural communities and the connection between them and people in the cities is of absolutely paramount importance. Quite often the only time that attention is, the attention of the city is really sort of given to the country is when something terrible happens, the bushfires for example. Mm. And it was great and there was you know, a huge amount of empathy, the community the rallying around and the things that have happened have been absolutely fantastic you know we've got the the situation now with the brawlers of this scary world that we're living in at the moment of covid 19 again of suddenly a realization that Although we can more than enough food in this country, actually, you know, seeing some things not on supermarket shelves and seeing them run out, making people suddenly realise, hey, this is a production line, this is actually we're depending on someone to actually produce this, it gets onto the shelf. So Mm -hmm. I think that that is a realisation a little of that food doesn't come from supermarkets, food comes from farms. I've often said that in the supermarket, it should say, fresh food thank a farmer yes well so you actually got that so i think that the role of i think philanthropy can do some very good things in that area in terms of making that connectivity because i think it's extremely important as verity said farmers are and rural communities are absolute front line of What I see as humankind's greatest challenge for the coming decades, food and nutritional security. So farmers are at the front line. We bring it back to Australia, Australian farmers there. I've said before, you know, that quite rightly, if we've got a military battle on, we give our front line the best possible equipment and technologies that you can and the greatest support, quite rightly. And and we've got to be doing the same with our farmers in our rural communities you know, the best tools in terms of technology, but not just that, it's also the services. And again, that has come out now, the way we're doing business. What we're hearing is that some people, you know, in rural areas just haven't got the connectivity to do what we're doing at the moment. And yet you now have to do that. And so we really need to see some major initiatives around regional development to make our food producing areas, even better places to live and to have vibrant communities. So I see some real opportunities in there, as well as more directly for philanthropy, as Verity said, around the upskilling, the training of farmers and their supporters in these new ways that we need to be having more regenerative farms where our natural resources are spiraling upwards. Not spiralling downwards. Downwards. Verity,
0: what's your take on that? The sense that perhaps the cities and the suburbs have a very consumerist view about their relationship with rural and regional Australia, rather than a more nuanced or accurate depiction of what's going on there?
1: Nick, my home farm is on the edge of the Western Australian wheat belt. So tiny little place between. So Ben Coven is the name of the very small yep. town nearest to where I grew up. Now I went away to boarding school at twelve, and the reason that I share this anecdote is that the very first question I was asked at boarding school from some of my fellow Year Eight students who were from urban backgrounds was, do you actually have showers out there or is it a bit like camp? And <laughs> while that was mildly insulting as a 12-year-old and Goodness. probably humorous now more than a, you know, a couple of decades <laughs> later, to me, it actually spoke so eloquently to this rural-urban divide that exists. And I know from, from where I sit, I've had this conversation so, so many times, having lived in the remote northern goldfields and then lived in the centre of Melbourne. You know, we do have different worlds that are operating within Australia. And the vast majority, unfortunately, of Australian residents, well, they're not particularly connected to their food source. And I think one of the exciting things, and while we are dealing with heartache and oh, an absolute tragedy and crisis unfolding out of COVID-19, One of the exciting things that's getting me out of bed every day is that maybe, just maybe, between COVID-19 and the compounding climate challenges that we're facing, maybe this is our moment where we finally bridge that rural-urban divide, where we realise how much we actually need each other and how connected we are, both as humans but also as food producers and food consumers. This is our shared story and I think the more that we can actually do to foster those connections, the more we then do to actually support our population in urban areas and equip our troops on the front line to use Tim's analogy, which in this case is, of course, our farmers and our rural communities. So that's the bit that sort of gives me hope out of this and I see a real role for philanthropy in supporting the bridging of those divides and making sure that rural communities voices are able to be heard at so many levels in decision making in the public narrative that we tell ourselves around what it means to be an Australian as well and we position our farmers and our rural areas really to be able to implement the solutions that we are going to need to deal with this situation
0: so just on that and picking up again on Tim's phrasing which you used again there Verity about being on the front line There is clearly such an urgency around dealing with so many of these problems. Are we able to respond this quickly or are we in a situation where we're just going to have to manage for the moment and make sure we get the longer-term settings right?
1: great question so there's multiple components to that one part is of course there is a degree of warming that is already locked into the system we are going to have to adapt to that and that does mean that in for certain areas there are going to be but there are going to be situations where incremental adaptation, so just changing the variety that you're sowing, for example, or changing the livestock that you run, the incremental adaptation is not going to actually be enough over the longer term. Those areas will need to really have the capacity and the resources to explore what transformational systems actually look like so that they can continue to be sustainable into the longer term. In the short term, that's the kind of conversation that we need to be having. But at the same time, I would certainly say that farmers are phenomenally innovative and adaptive. If we give them the right resources, and certainly there's a lot of work that we can do in that space. I mean, Nick, we're in the year 2020 and we don't have a national strategy to deal with climate change in agriculture. I don't know if that yeah, is as go. baffling to you as it is to oh, me. Well,
0: it's been <laughs> baffling to me for a long time, I have to say. <laughs>
1: (laughs) it's just extraordinary so we haven't even really begun to be able to tackle these challenges in the way that i believe that we need to but like i said i'm actually i'm hopeful we need to stare these challenges in the face and the murray darling basin is a good example we need to look at what's going to happen to inflows be very very honest with ourselves and our communities around what is going to happen as a result of climate change and then we need to get on with fixing it and i think that's where farmers have such an incredibly important and impact and powerful role to be playing, both in terms of farm gate level solutions, but also in being heard as trusted and respected messengers on these issues.
2: Thank you. Tim? There are two things. One, a good colleague in CSRO, Dr. John Kierkegaard, he has the phrase incremental transformation. That when you do a range of smaller things, which each have a benefit in themselves, actually, when you combine them, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And so I see it in two ones. One is that we have to be thinking about longer term sustainability, but there are things that we can do immediately to start to move to that. One could give, you know, the example if you're an intensive cropping farmer, how do you get eventually to a more regenerative system. First thing is you use more pulse crops, more legume crops in your rotation because they're nitrogen sparing. Then you sacrifice that pulse by brown manuring it. That's your next stage. You're getting a sort of a, a double break and nitrogen sparing and you are starting to increase yields because of that double break. Then you need to get more pasture legumes into the system, which then means livestock coming into the system. And then amongst those pastures, you need more perennial species because we know they are much deeper rooted. They build soil more readily, etc. And then into those perennials, you need shrubs and you need trees as appropriate. So there's a roadmap there. You can't jump from, I'll do that next year. This is a 10-year plan. It may even be a 20-year plan. That's one issue. Now, the, the second one is really of... Where the gaps are, and the gaps that we're seeing are in investments in sustainability, the sustainable issues. So, we're seeing burgeoning agricultural private sector with more agronomists in Australia now than there's ever been in the history. But, of course, you know, the private sector, you have shareholders' needs, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. The challenge is on the key sustainability issues, which are fundamental to everyone's business. How do we combine resources to be looking at, for example, sequestration of carbon in farming landscapes, which makes economic sense for the farmer, better soils, but also would help us to offset some of our national carbon emissions? These are longer term sustainability issues, which we've sort of had bits and goes at, but Now, for example, you know, we've got some new technologies, much better being able to measure these things remotely. So I see that investment in some of those longer-term sustainability issues around our soils, our water, not being addressed adequately at the moment. Government has the the Soils for Life program, Right Step Forward, leadership of Michael Jeffrey, but we need to be doing much more in that area.
0: Uh, that was a really valuable discussion from our point of view and I look forward to speaking again soon. Thank you very much.
2: Thanks very Thanks. much.